Welcome back to Bible time, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you'd give us understanding and wisdom and obedience as we read this verse and, and try and learn your will here, Lord God, and obey your will, Father. Help us to come away from this um, message, Father, more like Christ than we were before. In Jesus' name, amen. The average churchgoer assumes that the church was built to give them a comfortable place to come and observe the Lord's servants at their work. From the cushioned pew with climate-controlled heat in winter and cool in summer, they have the joy of honoring God's servants with their presence in the building and their, uh, and their criticism of all that goes on. To them, the pastor is an entertainer. He's a public speaker whose job is to captivate their interest, solve or salve their conscience, vindicate their viewpoints, comfort them in sorrow, praise them for their meritorious sacrifices in attending the church house, and the meetings that have been called and by giving maybe a tithe here or there or an offering. To them, the pastor is a scapegoat for the problems in their family, an amusement to be bantered about playfully, and his little talks, his little talks are useful conversation starters with friends to be parsed, inspected, criticized, picked through, and then discarded for the truly needy, sinful people that their patronage helps support by keeping the doors open and the lights on at the church house. The thought that the pastor is a, quote, man of God, end quote, is a strange, quaint, or perhaps a poetic thought to them. To esteem the pastor seems backwards as they feel that the pastor should esteem them. To listen and learn from the pastor seems odd, because to them he is their servant, whose existence is designed by the deacon board to meet their needs. With this mindset prevailing amongst average churchgoers, often even in Bible-believing, fundamentally sound churches, it is no wonder that the verse we are looking at today is generally delegated away as pastoral responsibility by the flock. Again, the scripture says here, um, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. We say that's the pastor's job. Comfort the feeble-minded. We say that's the pastor's job. Support the weak. That's the pastor's job. Be patient toward all men. That is definitely the pastor's job. But the Bible says, now we exhort you, brethren. <coughs> This is your job. This applies to you. This is being given to you by inspiration of the Holy Ghost and apostolic commandment through the word of Paul, the apostle chosen by Christ himself on the road to Damascus, ratified and verified by signs and wonders and all the power and the working of miracles of an apostle of the Lamb. And it is here given to you in the canon of scripture that you are to comfort the feeble minded. You are to warn the unruly. You are to support the weak and you are to be patient to all men. This is God's commandment to you. <clears throat> Let's look at this first exhortation. Warn them that are unruly. Oh, pastor, pastor, did you hear what um, Susie's kids did in the nursery? Did you see what Johnny did? Did you see how Sally climbed over the pews and ran in the church? Oh, pastor, did you know how the, that the pianist is watching this show on TV? Pastors are not babysitters. The job of the pastor is not to babysit you. The job of the pastor is not to make everybody do what you want them to do. The pastor is to be esteemed. The pastor is to be loved. The pastor is to be cared for. The pastor is to be followed. The pastor is to be listened to. The pastor is to be held accountable if he gets outside the bounds of scripture. The pastor is to be considered a brother in the Lord in all points of human equality, but should be held in high 
high esteem for his work's sake in love. But the pastor is not the little judiciary branch of God's kingdom that is given by God to settle petty disputes and squabbles in the church house. It is not the pastor's job to walk around poking people who are falling asleep. It is not the pastor's job to go rummaging through people's sock drawers and tell people whether or not they have the right color socks. It is not the pastor's job to make everybody mind. It is not the pastor's job to to make anybody really do anything. The pastor is an under shepherd. You can lead a, a animal to water, but you cannot make it drink. And it is not even the pastor's job to make people listen. It's your job to listen. It's not the pastor's job to make you listen. It's not the pastor's job to make your neighbor listen. It's not the pastor's job to make that weak person strong. It's not that pastor's job to make the unruly person mind. It's not the pastor's job to be patient toward all the people in the church exclusively himself. It's not the pastor's job in this text here to support the weak by himself and comfort the feeble-minded. It is is the brethren's job. Now the pastor is a brother and therefore the pastor is included in this exhortation as a brother. And so we have an equal responsibility in the church house from the pastor to the deacon, to the evangelist, to the teacher, etc., etc. We have an equal responsibility in the church house to take care of these four things that God has given us here in the word of God. Number one, warn them that are unruly. The average church member cries out with Cain, am I my brother's keeper? No, I don't want that job. I don't want to say anything. I'd rather talk about them behind their back. Oh, I'll go tell everybody else in the church house what Johnny did wrong. I'll go tell everybody else at the workplace what Sally said to the pastor. Oh, I'll go and call everybody on the phone and talk about um, the pastor's kids behind his back and I'll gossip about the deacon and I'll gossip about the piano player and I'll gossip about the Sunday school teacher to everybody and their brother, but I'm not going to say a word to that person. So we have a great error here. In order to be a godly and holy church member, we think it is our prerogative and our right to either gossip about everybody else, or if we're really pious and really holy and really right with God to say nothing. So on the one hand, you have the gossip, and on the other hand, you have the carefree bench warmer who will not say anything, sits there with hands folded, and oh, he says nothing, but his mind is going a thousand miles an hour. Here comes old Charlie walking back into the church, and his wife is wearing that skirt that's too tight again, and he's sitting there, and he's thinking all about it, and in his mind, he's having conversations all about it. In his mind, he's talking to people about it, but he knows better than to do that because he's been a good church member a long time. So he keeps his mouth shut and says absolutely nothing. But in his mind, he's raking his brother over the coals and he's completely distracted throughout the whole thing. And did you know the devil will especially come in in this area of modesty and he'll get somebody to analyze everybody else's wife's clothing for modesty. And that person sits there holier than thou and looks at every other woman in the church house and checks her out from top to bottom, from floor to ceiling, and and critiques and analyzes every square inch of her clothing, and the whole time his heart is burning with filthy lust that he is covered with what one preacher once said, an ecclesiastical covering. He's covered it with the veil of the temple. He's covered it with the cloth that would cover the bread on the table of showbread. He's covered it with a high and mighty holier-than-thou attitude, and he sits there piously with his hands holded while his eyes rove from one lady to the next as he criticizes them and looks at them with nothing but God, God dishonoring lust. 
but he's doing it as a Pharisee, holier than thou, so he excuses himself and his wicked behavior. He excuses his roaming eyes because he's busy um, criticizing them in his heart. And he thinks he'll. this is what will happen. Here he sits there, and there's Charlie's wife again. And here's this problem again. And he sits there the whole time saying, I wonder if the pastor saw that. I wonder if the pastor has recognized the threat to our young people. I wonder if the pastor is going to deal with this. And he sits there, and before too long, all of his self-righteous holy fervor against Charlie's wife's skirt becomes criticism of the pastor, and he begins to think of himself more highly than he ought, and to think the pastor um, unfit to do his job. And he begins to start feeling that the pastor is negligent in his duty, because if the pastor was half as holy as he was, the pastor would call out that person in public in front of everybody. What a mess we can get in. Again, saying nothing isn't always the right thing to do. The Bible says here, warn them that are unruly. There is a time and a place to go and say something to somebody. I want you to turn in the Bible to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. The Bible tells you while you're going there that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. It says, behold, what great a matter a little fire kindleth. And it says the tongue is a fire. Leviticus 19 and verse 15. He says here, ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. The tongue is a fire, but he says here, thou shalt judge thy neighbor. Verse 16, thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people, neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. God here says, it is not your job to be a tattletale. And by the way, the pastor does not need a tattletale. What parent out there is happy to have a tattletale? A little child that his whole purpose and goal in life seems to be to look at his brothers and sisters and catch them doing something wrong so that he can go and tell mommy and daddy and they can get their just desserts. No parent likes a tattletale, a talebearer. The Bible says the wounds of a talebearer, the words of a talebearer are as wounds that go down into the innermost parts of the belly. A talebearer is a troublemaker and where there is no fire, the, where there is, what does it say? No wood, the fire goeth out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceaseth and a pastor doesn't need a talebearer. God says, thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people. Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. Now I want you to cinch up your britches. If you're a man and tighten up that belt, you ladies, I want you to gird up the loins of your mind. I want you all to get ready for this next verse because this is a shocker. Verse 17, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. How in the world can that verse go with the other verse? How can verse 16, thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer, go with verse 17, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor. How in the world can rebuking thy neighbor be love? Verse 18, thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Did you have any idea? that the context of love thy neighbor as thyself was to rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin in him. How many of you had that in the context in your mind when I read thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself? You already had that settled in your heart that the direct context and placement of that verse is a neighbor to the verse that says thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Raise your hand if youth were thinking those two things go together. I've got no takers here. 
and probably no takers for the vast majority of people that will hear this message if anyone does. To love thy neighbor as thyself is generally considered to put up with everything he does, to overlook his sin. The Bible says love covereth a multitude of sins, and that's a fact. It's true, and it's real, and it's right. But here, the Bible, in its direct context of loving thy neighbor, says to rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. But it gives it to you in a sandwich. It says, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart. That's number one. Not to hate him in thy heart. Bun number one. The meat of it, rebuke thy neighbor. There's your burger. Um, Verse 18, thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. There's the other bun. Now you've got your sandwich. And if you try and do this with just the burger, it's pretty unappetizing. You got to bring this whole sandwich to the table if you want people to be happy with it. Because when you rebuke your neighbor, he probably won't listen to you. Most people will not hear rebuke the first time. The Bible says a scorner heareth not rebuke. The Bible says that a wise man loveth him that rebuketh him. But a scorner heareth not rebuke. Most people are more scorner than wise. Most of us have a flesh nature and most of us, whenever somebody comes up and tells us you're wrong, aren't real thrilled with it and we don't want to listen. But anybody that loves God will take it to heart and they'll go home and they may get right with it and they may come back and tell you they did and they may not. So you're left with the painful, often painful and unsavory task of cleaning up the dirty dishes from the meal that you served that wasn't even appreciated because that person did not say thank you. They were not, oh brother, I'm so glad that you care for my soul. And so there you go back to your house wondering if they hate your guts, wondering if they're going to spread defilement about you to everybody around and gossip about you, wondering if you just made an enemy out of a friend, wondering if you obeyed God and God says thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself I am the Lord so it's your burden that you will have to bear if you love someone enough to rebuke them go to 1 John 5 and 16 warning the brother is a definite part of loving the brother but there's something that comes first before warning the brother first john 5 16 if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death there is a sin unto death i do not say that he shall pray for it this is in the context of those great and mighty texts about believing god about knowing god knowing you have eternal life having confidence in god look at verse 14 and this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will he heareth us and if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death there is a sin unto death I do not say that he shall pray for it so before you open your mouth you need to start by taking this brother and this need to the Lord now in situations of great publicity where many people are involved it may require an immediate action when you see the preacher even about to get up and preach a message and he's got something big and green hanging out of his nose do you sit there and pray for him or do you go and warn him that something has gone unruly something has gotten out of order he might not have even known about it he probably missed it and you can give him the benefit of the doubt that he did not intend for that big green thing to be hanging out of his nose. So you say a flare prayer, prayer to God and you go and warn the unruly of his unruliness. And of course, that's a little bit humorous, but it's reality. And that's why he says, love thy neighbor as thyself. Would you like to stand up in front of a hundred people with something big and green and slimy hanging out of your nose? Probably not. And so instead of letting your brother go on in his transgression and his trespass, you warn him that is unruly. This is not talking about somebody who is in open rebellion to God. This says unruly, out of order. Something's not right. You got a brother, you're standing there in the church house and he starts to gossip about somebody else. Do you stand there and pray? Well, you better start with a flare prayer at the least and you better pray for that brother. But if you're standing there and there's a group of people and this man is gossiping, you have got to say something. 
You have got to warn him that is unruly. This does not say that you've got to pull out a club and beat him unconscious in front of everybody. This does not say that you kick him in the stomach. This says you warn them that are unruly. You have a brother that is standing there with a group of people and he speaks up and makes an off-color remark and tells a joke that should not be told in the house of God. Do you stand there quietly? Do you walk away? Do you go to your prayer closet and pray? If it's publicly, the Bible says they that sin publicly rebuke before all. If it's publicly, you've got to say something. You cannot be silent or you will be commensurate to it. But what if it's just you and him, you and your brother, you and your sister, and you're standing there and something comes out that's not quite right. It may be appropriate to go alone and quietly to your prayer closet and intercede for them before the father and say nothing at first because They're human too, just like you, and everybody makes mistakes. And you want to give them some slack because you're going to need slack too. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Would you want to be an offense to God's people and not have someone tell you? Would you want to act the fool unknowingly and go unwarned? Would you like to fall into sin and be left to sink to destruction and no one warn you to get out? If you were a foreigner and you came into our country and you were unaware of the custom of hillbillies to ridicule and mock their best friends publicly in front of other people, and you had been coming a little while and suddenly a dear old hillbilly in his overhauls, as they say down here sometimes, and his brogans is standing there and openly mocks you in front of people, how would you respond to it if you knew not that that was a sign of great affection and of trust and of tender care? Some of you are already rolling your eyes and gasping that such a thing could be the case. But that's how it works. If you're from the Ozarks and you really love somebody, you give them a hard time. If you don't love them, you're liable to say nothing to them at all and get away from them and give a lot of space. But the more you love them, the more likely you are to give them a hard time. If you're a true bred Ozarkian, okay? That's just an oddity to this area. But if somebody from the Ozarks goes to a church in, let's say, upstate New York, where I have some dear friends, and he walks in there and starts giving somebody a hard time where they're all dead level serious, and they have a completely different way of dealing with things and a different kind of sense of humor, he might be an offense to the whole congregation and everybody there be sitting there with shame and their ears burning and red and color coming to their faces and they might be completely ashamed and an offense being caused to the entire flock, the brother needs warned. You don't leave him that way. Another brother or a sister may stand up to sing a special and they sound like a cow that's calving. And there's no edification and there's no help. And it's a transgression of all kinds of human interaction with each other to let such unearthly sounds continue to emanate from their vocal cords. What do you do? Sit there quiet, act like it's a blessing, or do you warn them that are unruly, that their notes are not following any kind of musical pattern and there's no hope of edification from such a thing and that they need to either practice more, get instruction, or quietly sit down and enjoy a special from someone who God has gifted with musical ability. You see, we get this all wrong. We think that loving people means letting them go on in their unruly behavior. We think that loving a child means letting them run circles in the church house instead of taking them in hand and making them sit quiet. Not so. Warn them that are unruly. This is a commandment from the apostle. And we have unruly behavior in our church houses all over the place because nobody is willing to say anything for fear of offending someone, and I'll tell you what it really boils down to most of the time, you know that if you say something, everybody that hears you will criticize you. And they will think about what you said, and somebody will say, he was too hard on them. Boy, he let them have it, but he, I would have given them twice as much if I would have had the guts to say anything, and et cetera, and et cetera. And everybody's going to criticize you, so you don't say anything. And transgressions just go on piling up until church family splits, until there's explosions over seemingly small things that don't amount to much. And other people on the outside looking in say, what happened to them? They had minor disagreements that nobody would talk about for fear of cultural um, 
cultural faux pas. So nobody would say anything and everybody just kind of struggled on and just tried to make do and be patient with another. Oh, we'll take that last part of the verse. What did it say there? And be patient toward all men. We'll grab that one. Be patient toward all men, but that warn them that are unruly. We won't touch that one with a 10 foot pole. Oh, we won't know, but that busybody will. And we'll touch busybodies in a minute because that has nothing to do with what God's talking about here. I can remember a time in my life when I was very, very, very unruly. I had embraced many carnal and libertine principles in my life and was allowing the world to dictate much of my dress and music and much of my lifestyle, entertainment, places I went, things that I did, and I was bringing those influences into the church house. Over the years, as I was walking unruly, nobody said anything about it to me except one woman who got out from under her husband's authority to rebuke me instead of talking to her husband about it and coming to a way that we could actually talk about it on an equal footing and I could hear him and I rejected it wholesale and threw the whole thing out because of the inappropriate way in which it was done. One person, one person. And by the way, that person had a reputation for being a busybody. And was usually being a busybody. And so it was par for the course. And what she said was thrown out. And I didn't, nothing came of it. In the meantime, people all around me followed my, my bents, my, the things that I was allowing. Other people used me as an excuse. I'm a pastor's kid. And as a pastor's kid, I had extra influence in the church. You say, I don't like that. Tough. That's reality. That's how it works. You're a pastor's kid. You have extra influence. You say, I didn't ask for extra influence. No, you didn't ask to be born into a Christian family either. You could have been a Muslim. So cry me a river. Get over it and recognize the fact that you have extra influence when you are a pastor's kid. It is reality. You cannot get around it. And these other people, these other young people especially, were following my lead. Later, God got a hold of me. God turned me in from my unruly behavior. It was a lot of it wasn't what people would call sin, but it was unruly. It was outside the bounds of scripture. It was worldly. It was carnal. It was trending towards towards destruction. I went back to person after person, individual after individual that I had influenced towards the world. And I asked them, please forgive me. Please have mercy on me. I led you down a wrong path by my behavior. I didn't intend to lead you, but I have led you that direction. I have encouraged you in your wicked ways. The direction you're going is unruly. It will end in destruction. God rescued me. You don't have to go that way. It's a bad way. There's death and destruction that way. Come back to God. And time and time again, they told me that I didn't know what I was talking about. They told me, you'll get over this and get back to real life with the rest of us. And some of them told me, when you were doing all this stuff that we're doing now, we didn't bother you. We didn't warn you. We didn't say anything to you. So what makes you think you have any right to say anything to us? You don't love us or you'd shut up and bear with us and let us do what we're doing. We let you do it. Now you should let us do it. Boy, that's how the world works. My answer to them was, I wish. My answer to them with tears streaming down my face in more than one occasion was, I wish somebody had loved me enough to tell me you're wrong. What are you doing? You're on the road to distraction. You're taking your family towards the world. You're going the wrong way. What are you doing? (coughs) Thou shalt rebuke thy neighbor. Thou shalt not suffer sin in him. Long-suffering of your neighbor does not mean allowing sin and the influences of sin. Lord willing, if I have those, I thought I had those verses, we'll get to the busybodies eventually here. So next here in our text is comfort the feeble-minded. This is that one that there's a phrase in the Psalms. I meant to find it. I didn't get it. Um, David said, I am ready to halt. And old John Bunyan, with that funny wit of an English tenor, a man who works with tin, he, he in his Pilgrim's Progress has a character named ready to halt. David said, I am ready to halt. John the Bunyan took it like an inch and said, here's Mr. Ready to Halt. 
out of the Bible, basically, is the insinuation. It's just kind of funny. Uh, But in any case, this is that feeble-minded, ready to halt, just struggling along, feeble-minded, weak in the mind. And he says here, comfort the feeble-minded. The feeble-minded don't need warned. The feeble-minded should not be warned. The feeble-minded need comforted. The feeble-minded are those that have been in the battle, those that have been warring a good warfare, but they have slipped some and they have fallen prey to the doubts and the fears the devil has brought into their life. And for a moment, they're faltering. These are the feeble-minded. We have to have discernment in order to rightly obey these commandments. Who am I dealing with? What am I dealing with? Is this man unruly? Or is he feeble-minded? Here in Psalm 73, if you'll go there, David becomes feeble-minded. Truly God is good to Israel, even as such as are of a clean heart. Here he's recovered from it. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And here for many verses, almost 20 verses here, down from verse 4 through verse 20, David describes his feeble mindedness. He describes his weak mindedness, how he began to embrace a philosophy of Satan, that Satan had plagued him with this idea that the wicked were prosperous. There's no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, um, pride compasses them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. And he describes these things and he says in verse 13, verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency for all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend, offend against the generation of thy children. Here he became, David came under the influence of satanic doubts and fears that were troubling his mind, that made him think that it was all a waste, making him think that his life, his work, his labor, his following of God, his purity, his obedience to God, his, his seeking of God and the word of God, his love for the Bible, that it was all for nothing, that it was all for naught, and that it would come to nothing and accomplish nothing and that the wicked had a better life than he had. And under this stroke of the hand of the enemy of the devil, David fell prey in his mind to feeble mindedness and he became weak. He says, when I thought to know this in verse 16, it was too painful for me. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awaketh. So, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Look at the comfort that David found that pulled him out of this situation. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a whoring from thee, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all thy works. David found comfort in his feeble-mindedness. It is important to understand that feeble-mindedness is not sin. When someone begins, now the feeble-mindedness will result in sin if not checked, but feeble-mindedness is a weakening of the mind, a, a shaking of the faith, and this is something that God allows every Christian to go through. If you have not been feeble-minded yet, you will be someday. This is humanity. This is our weakness. This is our vanity, that we are human beings, and therefore we are very weak. You may have been able to make it so far without being weak, but get in the battle, get in the fight, and you will find yourself plagued from time to time with feeble-mindedness. They say that Charles Spurgeon is called the prince of preachers by some men. Charles Spurgeon had a weak spot. He had a few weak spots. 
Charles Spurgeon, one of them was, he had an addiction to reading the critics in the newspaper who criticized his sermons. And for some unknown reason that makes no sense to me at all, he would get the paper every day after he preached and read what every critic, every unbeliever, every God-hater had to say about how stupid he was and about how dumb his sermon was and about all the points he got wrong. And he would plunge upon reading it into extreme despair and depression that his wife could not comfort him through. And for at least a day or two or sometimes three days every week, he would be in the blackest despair and hide himself away in his study, weeping and crying out to God and feeling like a total failure. Why? I don't understand why he did that, but he had feeble mindedness in that area. Everybody does. Everybody has areas of feeble mindedness. I think of a great preacher who started a great work in the eastern, in the eastern southern states um, some 50 or so years ago. And he had a great work and many people flocked to his work and his church was growing and strong. And the ministries were expanding and people were being saved. And the man was um, taken on as church staff to be an assistant to the preacher. I forget who this man was. I forget both their names, but if I could say them both, most of you that would listen, that would even take time to listen to me would probably know who those guys are if I could remember them. They're both names that are known. The young man that was the assistant later went on to become one of the most well-known, fundamentally sound, Bible-believing preachers in the United States later in his life. But that young man, while he was assisting that older man as a pastor, he would drive him from place to place. He would run errands for him. He would do little things that needed done at the church house. He would pray next to him, and he just helped him. He was just an Elisha to Elijah, and he just washed the hands of Elijah and helped him. And as he did that, his testimony later, after that great preacher had died, he testified that that great preacher, almost every day, almost all day, if that preacher wasn't in the pulpit, the man was in depression, in a great battle of depression. He said the preacher would weep and groan and moan and sometimes sometimes crawl about on the floor of his study, begging God just to take him out of this world, telling God he was useless, telling God there was nothing else that he could do, telling God he didn't know why God ever picked him anyway. The young preacher testified that the older preacher looked at him one day, and I wish I could remember verbatim what he said, but he said something to the effect of, I didn't ask for this job. I'm not qualified for this job. I don't have a degree. I don't have training. I don't know how to run a church with over a thousand people in it. I don't know how to shepherd these people. I can't go in. I can't come out. I don't know what I'm doing. Everybody out there is more qualified than me. They're right to criticize me, but God told me to do it and I don't know what to do. Help Lord. And he started crying out to God again and fell on his face behind his desk. And of course, those of you that know God in his ways know right there why God chose that man for that job. Feeble-mindedness needs comforted, not warned. And sometimes the greatest of the great, the giants of the faith, if you knew them in their study when other people couldn't see them, you would say, how in the world does God use that creature? We all need a brother or sister to comfort us at some point. The Bible says comfort the feeble-minded. It is not a sin to be feeble-minded. Don't treat the feeble-minded like sinners. Comfort them or you will destroy them. You warn the the feeble-minded and you will probably drive them away from God. You warn the unruly lest they run away from God, you comfort the feeble-minded. Next, it says here, support the weak. Go to Psalm 109. (coughs) Psalm 109. If you read the Psalms, you do not see very often the man riding in a chariot or on a horse at the head of the great armies of Israel that were conquering every world power in their day, that subdued and subjugated every great modern army of their day under the leadership of the great general and King David. 
Instead, you find a man like in Psalm 109 and verse 22, which is a Psalm of David who says, For I am poor and needy. My heart is wounded within me. I am gone like the shadow when it declineth. I am tossed up and down as the locust. And here he exposes his feeble-mindedness. And then in verse 24, we find weakness. My knees are weak through fasting. My flesh faileth of fatness. Over and over and over again, David would confess his weakness before God. Most people say supporting the weak is the pastor's job. God says it's your job. The Bible says in Galatians 6 verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of God. Go to 1 Corinthians 9. Here Paul says that to the weak, he became as weak that he might win the weak. Let's find it. 1 Corinthians 9. To the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. It's awful hard to hold on to your high and mighty holiness while supporting the weak. To support the weak, you must get under the weak. In order to support something, you must gird it up. You must hold it up. And in order to hold something up, you must get underneath it. You cannot support anything or anyone that you are higher than. At least part of you has to get lower than that person in order to support him. Supporting the weak takes humility. This is what Paul's saying to the weak. I became I as weak that I might gain the weak. Instead of saying they're weak, we've got no use for them in our church house. Paul said he became weak to win the weak. Go to first Corinthians eight. Back a chapter, chapter 8 and verse 1, he says, he's talking about things offered unto idols here and speaking about how the idols are nothing, but the devils, he does say later, are something. You cannot have fellowship with God and devils, but verse 7, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So here he speaks of a brother whose conscience is weak. His knowledge is lacking. He's not advanced in the kingdom and in the texts and in the doctrines of the word of God to the point of being able to handle something that you can handle. These texts are used all the time to excuse blatant, outright sin and rebellion against God by libertine Christians that plague this nation with their false doctrines and heresies. I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about things that God does not call sin that a brother thinks is sin, even though it's not really sin and his conscience is offended by it. And here Paul says to the weak, I became as weak that I might gain the weak. That means he was willing to condescend to those people who were weak and did not try and drill sergeant them into being strong. He condescended to these men of low estate. He says, but meat commendeth us not to God in verse eight, for neither if we eat, are we the better? Neither if we eat, not are we the worse, but take heed lest by me in any means, this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Again, here are the weak for if any man see thee, which has knowledge, sit at meat in the idols temple, shall not the conscience of him, which is weak, be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols. And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ who Who's the sinner here? The one with the weak conscience or the one who sins against the brother with the weak conscience? The one that is strong, that does not have the weak conscience, but who does not care for and support the weak is the one who is in sin, not the weak. Being weak is not sin. It's just weakness. And we are all weak to some degree on some level. The very strongest of us have areas of weaknesses, areas where we are susceptible to temptation, areas where the devil hinders us and hampers us by having all kinds of superstitious things enter our minds about what we're doing. We all have weaknesses and the devil knows we have weaknesses and the devil exploits those weaknesses. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, I believe, 3, that God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the mighty, the things that are strong. Weakness is not a sin. Weakness is, again, humanity, just like feeble-mindedness. 
It's humanity. It's the basic reality of the condition of the sheep. A sheep is weak by very nature. Everything about a sheep is weak. It cannot run fast. It cannot stand high. It cannot jump over fences. It cannot do hardly anything. It can't even pick its own food or it'll pick something that upsets its tummy. And when it gets an upset tummy, it'll die over a tummy ache. Weakness is in, in, invariably part of being a sheep. But you know who are not weak? Wolves. Wolves are not weak. Wolves are very strong. Wolves have it all together. Wolves have it all figured out. And wolves can survive in the wild alone, or they can team up as a pack and they can even fight each other dog on dog and cut and rip and bite and still survive and work together. But sheep cannot... And sheep are weak and it is not a sin to be weak. And if you think everybody in your church has to be strong, you will have a church full of wolves because you will drive out all the sheep. Sheep are weak and the Bible says support the weak. So there you sit and you're strong in your area and you see a brother who's weak in that area and you think it's your job to go over and force him to see your point of view. I'm as guilty as anyone. Maybe not as guilty as anyone, but I'm certainly guilty. By God's grace, I don't want to continue in it. And some of you think it's your calling in life to try and beat down the weak instead of supporting the weak. You say, oh, look, it's a weak bridge. Where's the dynamite? Instead of saying, oh, look, it's a weak bridge. Let's get some timbers and some iron and let's build this thing up and edify it and establish it and strengthen it. You say, let's get the dynamite. Blow that thing out of there. Let's start over with a new one. God says, support the week there in first corinthians 8 and verse 7 he speaks of it in verse 9 verse 10 verse 11 verse 12 he said he speaks of the weak and they that sin against their brother by wounding their weak conscience he says ye sin against christ wherefore if meat make my brother to offend i will eat no flesh while the world standeth lest i make my brother to offend first john 2 says that if you love your brother there is no occasion of stumbling in you Verse 10, he that loveth, 1 John 2, 10, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Now in the context of who's strong and who's weak, the man who was eating the meat offered to idols was strong and the man who was not was the weak. So what you have here is the man walking up to the other one that's weak and saying, look, 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 Jesus made wine, which by the way, is not meat. It's a different subject. But here he is using me as an excuse to propagate drunkenness and drinking recreationally alcoholic beverages. And he comes up to his weaker brother and says, Jesus made wine. And next thing you know, he's got that weaker brother drinking with him. The man is a wolf. Very likely a wolf in any case. At very least, he's sinning against Christ. And he comes up and he tries to force other people to come up to his level of so-called liberty in Christ. Many times, this is not liberty at all. Many times, it's straight up sin that he's involving people in. And he is sinning against Christ. These churches where the pastor will stand up and drink a Bud Light in front of the whole congregation. And he dresses like the world and he talks like the world and the whole church has their religiosity is how close to the devil I can look and smell and talk and act and still claim to be saved. They are offending Christ. They are sinning against Christ. And that is the whole contemporary movement today. All this mega church contemporary movement, you are offending Christ. You are sinning against Christ stumbling weaker brothers to support means to condescend to them second corinthians chapter 11 go there quickly to support the weak means condescend to them yield your rights suffer long with them if they if need be go the extra mile to make sure that what you're doing is not an offense to the weaker conscience of those around you. Does the Bible say thou shalt not smoke? No. And that's a much more true to task analogy than drinking liquor. 
It's amazing. Most of this liquor crowd, they'll drink their Bud Light and then they'll say smoking's a sin. It's the weirdest thing in the world. Whereas the Bible says wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. That pegs them right there. So here in um, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, he says here, besides those things that are without, that, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is offended and I burn not. Paul here is showing you that he supports the weak. God is commanding you to support the weak. To support the weak, you will be weak with the weak. Whenever you are supporting the weak, it means that the burden and the weight of the weak is upon you and you cannot perform to the level that you could perform without them. I remember um, a long hike with, with a bunch of men and there was a very weak man in the hike and he could not keep up and he would grab onto the back of other men's backpacks and hang all of his body weight on their backpacks. And do you know what? When he did that, the men who were pulling him could not move as fast. Their step was not as sure. They were more apt to stumble, and they became weaker together. Support the weak. The man made it through the hike because he was supported. There came a point where that weak man refused to grow up, and those other men gave him some strong exhortations if I could put it that way, to move. And he did. And he found his feet. And he found his legs. And guess what? By the end of that hike, he was helping other weak men. Some of the very men that had helped him. And guess what? They had become weak helping him. They had used up all their reserves helping him at the beginning of the hike. And so they were exhausted and ready to fall over. And at the end of the hike, he who they supported was supporting them. This is God's way, but it takes humility because none of us want to be weak. And none of us want to cross the finish line weak. How do you think Mr., let's just call him Mr. A, who was polling Mr. D. And if you and any of the men that were with me on that hike are there, they'll know what I'm talking about. If Mr. A, who was polling Mr. D., crossed the finish line of the hike with his pack, with a quick step, whistling a happy tune, not even breaking a sweat, flexing his arm, he'd look pretty cool. But instead, Mr. A helped pull Mr. D for the whole first half of the hike and became so exhausted that he crossed the finish line hanging on Mr. D's pack. And he looked pretty sorry. He was covered in sweat from head to toe. He had dirt and mud all over his body from where he had fallen and stumbled along the track. But he crossed the finish line and he crossed hanging on Mr. D's pack and Mr. D was standing tall. Who looked cool? Mr. D, not Mr. A. Supporting the weak will often make you look foolish. You must be humble to support the weak. And then whenever they stand because you supported them and you gave all your energy and there they are standing and you're sitting on the sidelines weak and wounded yourself and having to be supported and everybody says, look at that guy stand. If you're full of pride, you'll hate God for it and blow out of church. You've got to be humble to support the weak. Being weak is not a sin. Um, the last thing here, be patient toward all men. Go to 1 Corinthians 9, 22. 1 Corinthians 9, 22. We've already been there. <clears throat> he says, be patient toward all men. Here, the Apostle Paul says, by inspiration of the Holy Ghost in 9.22, to the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Be patient toward all men. Go to Romans chapter 5. There's a law in life that whenever you are alive, you are going to encounter tribulation if, you're, if you serve God. And when you encounter tribulation, you're going to be weakened by that tribulation. And a lot of times I've seen this happen. I've done it in my own life. You see someone who's weak and you won't support them because you want to be strong and appear strong. And so instead you exalt yourself, get ready for a fall. You're going to be the next one that's weak, whether you help them or not. Just a little word of warning for those that would be unruly and refuse to heed this exhortation. 
Romans chapter 3 says, Tribulation worketh patience here in verse 2 or verse 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also knowing that tribulation worketh patience. God works patience in us by showing us our own weakness. Whenever we are standing and our brother is down, understand that God is working in your brother just like he was working on you when you were down. Oh, but when you were down, that was different. I understand that. That's how our mind thinks. But God wants you to be patient towards all men because you have been unruly. You have been um, in need of comfort as a feeble-minded person, and you have been weak before, and you will probably be unruly again. You will probably be feeble-minded again, and you will probably be weak again. Be patient toward all men. Go to Romans 12. This is what is required in order to be patient towards all men. Verse 3, for I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Go to Philippians. There in Philippians, we won't see the word patience, but we'll see the greatest example of patience, and we'll see what it means to support the weak and comfort the feeble-minded as we look at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this here of Christ humbling himself even unto death, the Bible says Christ tasted death for all men. And here you are exhorted, I am exhorted, we are all exhorted together, be patient toward all men. We're told to warn the unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Trust God to do God's work of changing and conforming. Now, a lot of us have this doctrine down. Trust God to do the work in your brother. Recognize that they're a work in progress like you are. We've all got that down till we've got the bumper stickers, we've got the t-shirts, we've got the coffee mugs. But not only should you trust God to do his work, obey God and do your work in bearing your brothers and sisters' burdens as God would have you to do it. We've all got it down that we should wait on God. At least we say we do. We at least act like we do in public to those people that would criticize us for failing in such a way. But do we obey God when he says, warn the unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men? None of those commands except the patience are passive. Three of those commands require active obedience and interaction with the people that you're dealing with. One of those commands is passive. Get off your seat and get to work for God. Do your part. We're called to be soldiers. There's no room for bench warmers in the army of God. You were not saved to sit on a pew and keep your spot warm. God saved you and he sanctifies you if you're willing for his service and to do his work. And he tells us here, warn the unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you take this and use it. And I pray that we'd obey it, that we'd get in the battle and love as brethren and stand and fight the devil together instead of, Lord, trying to be hot shots and show stealers and 
trying to get all the glory and get the limelight, Lord, always wanting the attention, always wanting everybody to cater to us and serve us and fix what we want fixed. Help us, Lord, just to get servant-hearted and to follow Jesus and be like Jesus who died for us and was buried and rose again the third day, that whosoever shall believe on the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, shall be saved. And he's been so patient toward us. Help us to be patient towards others. In Jesus' name, amen.